Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Orthopedic Surgery Podcast, a curated series of interviews and discussions highlighting the three shields of orthopedic surgery at Mayo Clinic, clinical practice, research, and education. Welcome back to the Mayo Clinic Orthopedic Surgery Podcast. I'm John Barlow, your host, and today I'm really excited about our guest. We're welcoming Joaquin Sanchez-Sotelo. He did his training in Spain and then joined Mayo Clinic for shoulder and elbow and hip and knee fellowships, and he's been here ever since. Well-known on the national and international stage for uh, research and uh, discussion of shoulder arthroplasty in particular, among other shoulder and elbow topics, we're really excited to have him today to talk to us about reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. Thanks for joining, Joaquin. Thank you, John, for the invitation. Pleasure to be here. It's exciting. As uh, we talk about uh, reverse total shoulder arthroplasty, we've seen just a massive uh, growth in the use and utilization of reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. Can you talk to us? Do you think that this pendulum has swung too far uh, in, the, in favor of reverse total shoulder arthroplasty? Or do you think um, there's still room to grow and that this is just going to be the future? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I do think that reverse arthroplasty is such a wonderful operation. You know, when I was a fellow, because I'm so old, we didn't have reverse, you know. So I remember many patients that we just had to do an anatomic arthroplasty. And for many patients, especially castor arthropathy, we just didn't have a good solution. So I have to say that it is just wonderful. And uh, to some extent, it can be intoxicating when you see patients coming back three or four weeks after surgery and they already have no pain and can move the shoulder. Having said that, reverse arthroplasty has also some bad complications and nuances. So if you have a patient that has a dislocation, spine fracture, you know, that can be a challenge. And I do think that anatomic arthroplasty is such a wonderful operation. So as modern shoulder surgeons, I think our job is to find the right indications for both styles of implants. And as we evolve, I think we will improve in both. That's great. And I think um, I may be overstepping, but I think it's essentially consensus in, in 2021 that in the fracture setting, reverse total shoulder arthroplasty clearly outperforms hemiarthroplasty. Um, and certainly in the setting of massive rotator cuff tears, I think reverse total shoulder arthroplasty is a workhorse. Do you have other indications in which you're finding yourself consistently doing a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty? Let's say the B2 glenoid or the B3 glenoid, is that uh, common in your practice or, or, um, or kind of niche use? No, it is common. So as you mentioned before, when I started using reverse, the only indication was cafter arthropathy. Then we evolved into the massive cafter without arthropathy. Then we evolved into proximal humerus fractures. Then we evolved into using them for revision procedures. And now we're using them for, I would say, 30 to 40% of the patients that present with primary OA. And typically the reason for that is a combination of massive or severe bone loss on the glenoid and substantial subluxation, which is a surrogate for soft tissue imbalance. Yeah, I think that's interesting because I think people are, have picked off on anatomic total shoulder arthroplasty enough um, on the fringes where the B2 glenoids with subluxation we're really going to reverse. And um, one of the things that I think we tend to really do uh, quite a bit at Mayo is have both options available. Can you talk about in what instances you might flip from doing an anatomic to 
where you come in with a plan of anatomic and what would push you into a reverse intraoperatively? So that nowadays is actually uncommon. I try to make up my mind before surgery, but I always consent patients for both because the two or three situations where I may have chosen to do an anatomic and I find myself switching to reverse are if I realize that the sous capillaries is never going to heal. So sometimes you do your approach, either PL, tenotomy, whatever you do, and then you feel that the sous capillaries is so poor, so contracted, it's never going to work. So then I switch to reverse. The second is when I think that I'm going to be able uh, to get my anatomic glandular component perfectly seated in terms of version inclination, you know, all my orientation, and I cannot make it happen. So if I don't get perfect seating in, within my parameters, I will also bail out to a reverse. And the final thing is, even if I have my trials in place, and I just cannot get the balance. If I have the components where I think, and the thickest head I can use, and the shoulder is still subluxing, I will not blink an eye to reverse. So poor subescapillaries, failure to get the component what I want when it's doing an anatomic level component, and then poor soft tissue balance at the end of surgery are my three indications to switch to a reverse. That's really nice. And I think it speaks to this idea of not leaving the OR unhappy. So if one of those situations, you know, we've, everybody's done put in the trials for the anatomic total shoulder placement, that thing just stays out the back and uh, you feel like you've got it perfectly corrected. Uh, it's going to go back out the back, I think, after surgery. So it's really helpful to have that reverse there and to have that conversation beforehand. That's the combined decision making of reverses work well, anatomics work well, we're going to make the right decision for you at the time of surgery. So uh, super helpful. Uh, no way I'm going to let you get off the podcast without talking about one of my favorite things to talk with you about is the history of component design. You work a lot in industry and on different component designs, and you've also been a careful student of implant design over the years. Can you talk to us about the evolution, let's say for residents who come along now and are talking about lateralized and medialized uh, reverse shoulder placement. Can you talk about where we came from and then maybe where we have arrived now and what your current thinking is about best implant design for reverse total shoulder placement? So that, that is a great question, John. And as you know, I love the history of orthopedics. So I didn't get to meet personally Dr. Paul Gramont, who was the first person that popularized this idea of a reverse orthoplasty the way we think about it today. And for those that are younger and don't know about the history of it, Dr. Gramont was trying to find a solution for patients that had dysfunctional rotator cuffs in the setting of arthritis that needed arthroplasty. And he came up with the idea of using an implant that has two features that will help those patients. One is that the implant is more constrained, and that is something that many people underplay. Constrained is one of the main reasons why reverse works. Number two, he planned an implant where the central rotation was medial to the interface between the base plate and the bone, and that had two benefits. First, the distance between the central rotation and the deltoid is larger, so you have a greater moment arm for the deltoid. And secondly, because central rotation is medial to the interface, then there is compressive forces with motion and it can minimize shear that may lead component loosening. His fear was dislocation because you're moving the shoulder all the way in, the deltoid is really powerful pulling up. The joint is gonna dislocate vertically. So his implant had a very flat polyethylene to prevent dislocation. And that's the way that it was conceived. And 
it worked really well and I have done a lot of Gramonte style reverses and I have patients now that are 15 years post-op and I'm still amazed about their active elevation. But there were two issues. One is that the polyethylene will collide with the middle scapular pillar and that will generate polyethylene wear, notching, osteolysis, eventually loosening. And number two, the rotator cuff is not in the best position to provide the strength in axial rotation. So I'm going to tell you next is, is well known because Mark Frankel was revolutionary in the field of reverse orthoplasty and he's told this story publicly multiple times and I've listened to him multiple times, but Mark Frankel went to France and was really uh, uh, impacted by the idea of a reverse prosthesis. He was working with a striker at the time, I believe, and he wanted the striker engineers to make him a custom-made reverse for his patients, basically. And it's funny because what I understand from his talks, John, is that using a 135-degree angle was actually completely serendipitous. It's just that the engineers and striker were doing everything at 135, so they gave him a reverse at a 135. But he was interested in more lateralization. And based on what he told us in the last meeting I listened to him, the first hundreds that he did, he wrote a prescription for the patients because it wasn't FDA approved. And in fact, I think he got a citation from the FDA saying, <laughs> we've been doing custom prosthesis for hundreds of patients with no approval, you know? And basically his ideas actually, I think are going to prevail. So if you pay attention to implant design today, every surgeon, every company is converging to more than lateralization and a more vertical polyethylene. So the configuration that Frankel came up with, partly because of luck, partly because he's very, very bright, is actually the way to go in 2021. Yeah, it's amazing. And you talk about uh, some of these people who just had an idea and stuck with it in spite of a lot of probably um, discussion about why that may be challenging. And I think it's interesting for all of us as we think about our roles in the field, uh, about how many patients have been helped by the designs of the reverse uh, reverse shoulder placement. So what uh, what's your current, let's say, 72-year-old uh, uh, woman who's got uh, cuffed arthropathy? What's your preferred configuration of uh, varus valgus angle, component position, lateralization, and uh, glenosphere size? So a couple of comments before I dive into that specific question, John, I think what we're going to learn over time, and I think I'm already doing that, and I think you are doing it too, is that our implant planning and soft tissue tension cannot be the same for every diagnosis and every patient. So some of the things that I change are based on my indication. I, I position and tension my reverse for primary OA very differently than I do it for a fracture, very different than for cuff arthropathy. Secondly, patient size matter. There are some very, very tiny petite females uh, that are 72, like you mentioned, that you couldn't really use large components, even though you would love to do it because they will have less impingement. So I try to keep that into consideration. But having said all that, as a general principle, what I do today is I lateralized on the glenoid side between five and seven or five and eight millimeters. And depending on the bone geometry, I may do that by different tools. So for example, if a patient has no asymmetric bone loss, I probably will lateralize through the glenosphere. If a patient has asymmetric bone loss, I'm going to lateralize through the base plate because then I will use an augmented component. And then on the humeral side, I think uh, most of us would agree that a 135 degree polyethylene angle is going to gain more and more traction as long as you lateralize enough 
on the glenoid dislocation is not too high and I think longevity will be superior. What's unclear to me is what to do on the humeral side in terms of lateralization. And I think there uh, we all simplify and we say my implant lateralizes or medializes and it's not that, it's how much does it lateralize. So what I like to see is that my greater tuberosity lands after surgery where it should be in a normal shoulder laterally. It's always more inferior because reversal with distal devices, but I want to see that it lands laterally because if it does that, my rotator cuff and my delta are probably going to be in the best situation to provide the best function for the shoulder. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And kind of this, some people are thinking a little more, bit more about an anatomic reverse total shoulder arthroplasty or distorting it a little bit less. And we, we saw a lot of the medialized and distalized shoulders. And um, I think uh, I, I agree with you. I'm, I'm sort of putting it uh, back out a little bit more. It always distalizes just a little bit. That brings up another topic that people uh, have been talking, I think, increasingly about. What are your current thoughts about management of the subscapularis in reverse total shoulder arthroplasty? Do you repair it? Do you excise it? Um, or is it case by case? That's another very, very uh, unsolved, I think, controversy. So I'll tell you what I do. I do repair the subscapularis whenever possible. That's what I do. And the reason is basically twofold. Number one, it does provide some anterior soft tissue restraint to translation. So depending on your patient, it may actually decrease your instability rate. Number two, it does provide power in internal rotation. And we always are worried about not having enough internal rotation. So I am in the camp of repairing the subscapularis. But do I do it in every single patient? No. If I have a very atrophic contracted subscapularis, I will not repair it because it will actually limit or counter uh, act the action of the deltoid muscle. So if it's a healthy, flexible subscapularis repair all the time. If it's very contracted, then I would probably let it fly. Yeah, me too. And I think you do see, I mean, this is anecdotal, but I think you do see an improved internal rotation in those patients uh, when you repair the subscapularis. I'm the same and I just worry about uh, instability. So uh, I think it's nice for that. And there's some data on that. How about thoughts about substantial glenoid bone loss? Obviously the reverse is helpful for us to get better fixation versus an anatomic with some bone loss. Are you um, using humeral head autograft or have you gone to metal augments instead? Or do you just, uh, let's say, use a standard augment and leave it maybe 60% covered? How do you make the decision about um, escalating up that uh, ladder? So my practice has evolved towards using more metal augments when there is bone loss on the glenoid and I do a reverse. And the reason for that is that uh, number one, I think metal um, will give you already incredible stability at time zero. And because reverse is more forgiving for version, many times you can accommodate with an off-the-shelf wedge to almost any deformity. But there is a limit. There are some really large bone loss defects that cannot be compensated with an off-the-shelf wedge, or you would place it in like 25 degrees of retroversion, you know? So I do use bone graft for the very, very severe deformities. And of course, many surgeons have used bio RSA techniques very successfully. What I think is gonna happen as time goes by is that with the ability of uh, using rapid 3D printing manufacturing, we're gonna get patient matched implants that will replace the bone grafts. So we will use off the shelf augments for the intermediate defects. And if you have a patient with a massive defect, you can plan for a bone graft and then basically have the company build you 
a metal augment that has the dimensions of the bone graft. That's what we will see, I think, in the next decade. Yeah, that's great. And I, I sort of fell in love with the bio-RSA and using the humeral head uh, autograft to fill that in. And I think, um, I just think the metal augment, I agree with you. It feels like the next next generation. You get really good fixation. And I think you can feel confident about um, getting ingrowth onto the back of that uh, rather than I think some of the bio RSAs or otherwise, you see some of the bone graft resorb over time. And I'm not sure that it's really um, restoring much bone. So I, I agree with you. And I think um, as patient-specific implants um, grow, I think it's going to be really exciting for us. Uh, more and more people uh, are feeling comfortable. Our surgeons are feeling comfortable with doing reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. But I think each of us have seen times when it's not perfect and um, in a learning curve. What do you think are some of the surgical keys to getting the reverse done, uh, technical tips to getting the reverse done just, just right? Well, that's a very difficult question to answer, but I'll, I'll do my best. So number one, you have to plan your case. And by plan, I don't mean that you have to use software if you don't like to use it, but you have to look at your x-rays and your CT scan carefully. It's a mistake to go to the OR without anticipating what type of reverse you need to do. And that includes diagnosis, patient size, assessment of the calf, assessment of bone loss, and so on. Number two, you need to have adequate exposure. So if you don't get to the glenoid properly, you're never going to get it right. Number three, sometimes it's tricky to get the inclination right because with the reverse, I think ideally you want to have a slight inferior tilt for multiple reasons. And one guideline that many surgeons use is to make sure that your central screw or post is essentially parallel to the floor of the surfinitus fossa. To do that, you have to actually place the component with much more tilt interoperative than you think. Sometimes I look at my guide wires like, wow, that looks really steep. But if I don't get it there, I'm not gonna get my component right. And finally, until you are an expert in soft tissue balance for reverse, it's okay to trial. I think we have seen many surgeons that are very, very, very efficient and they can basically place the base plate get the glenosphere and go on. And that's okay if you're an expert, but if you're not so sure, it's okay to understand what type of combination of a sphere size, offset eccentricity, and humeral bedding will give you the best range of motion and soft tissue balance. Yeah, that's really good. And I think um, while the reverse uh, feels to all of us maybe a little bit more forgiving than an anatomic total shoulder arthroplasty, I think um, when it fails, it's really pretty catastrophic. So getting getting that just right is important. I, I've been too excited about this and we're going a little bit long, but I want your 30 second update and we'll maybe do another, we could do a full new podcast on it. 30 seconds into thoughts on prevention or treatment of acromial spine fractures. Yeah, that's a complication that we all dread. And in 30 minutes, first, in 30 seconds, sorry, first identify the patient at risk. So osteopenia, prior acromioplasty, females, older patients. Number two, make sure that that reverse is not hypertensioned. And number three, beware of impingement in combined abduction standard rotation. I've always thought that the reason for the fracture was too much pull of the deltoid. And more and more, I think that some patients will get the fracture because they're constantly banging the tuberosity with the acromion. And it's that movement that will start to move the acromion until it finally fractures. That's perfect. And I look forward to doing another podcast and we can dig deep because it's... Um... Sometimes it feels a little bit like Russian roulette. You do these reverses, they look perfect, and then the patient comes back and it, it can really compromise their, their outcomes. 
I want to kind of summarize what we've talked about. And I think we've got a, about six more podcasts to go for reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. Um, but then I'd like you to kind of update us on uh, things that, that you see in the future. So from <clears throat> what I've understood from you, it sounds like I think we've gone through a long iteration with reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. The outcomes are uh, increasingly reliable, especially when used for the right indications. <clears throat> the iterations now are slightly more lateralized and uh, various components. And I think careful and critical preoperative templating and intraoperative surgical management is critical to getting it right. Any other thoughts you'd like to leave us with? I think we're gonna be in a very exciting moment for reverse orthoplasty. We have mastered indications and component position. We have to go now one step forward and really understand how to measure intraop adequate soft tissue tension. I think that's gonna be the next thing in primary reverse. Secondly, reverse orthoplasty is the workhorse of revision surgery. And I think in revision surgery, I think we're fooling ourselves. We are not doing perfect. So I think a major improvement has to happen when reverse is used as a revision operation and to deal with bone loss, instability, and infection is going to be a major need for improvement in the near future. Thank you, John. Thanks so much for joining. And I look forward to that conversation. Certainly, we've talked a lot about uh, instability. I even left it aside because it's too much of a hot button. I know we would get going on it. So thanks so much for joining us, Joaquin. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you.